Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Bento Box and Clover. From websites and marketing tools to point of sale, payments, and ordering, Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I just wanted to like be myself, my own human self, and I wasn't allowed to do that for a very long time. And I think what this book really shows is I'm all of these things. You know, my food is not authentic to one experience or another. It's accumulation of all these things that I am, imperfect as they are. That is the voice of Reem Asil of Reems, California, and author of the book Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. Reem is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is Reem Asil of Reem's California, whom I met with in New York recently. Reem has a new book out, Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. We get into the book and a whole lot more, including a new project uh, Reem was working on at the time, which is about to debut actually with Rosario Dawson. More on all of that in a moment. If I seem to be speaking a little bit more softly than usual, it's because I am on the road this week. I am in Boulder, Colorado, and from here I will be going to Los Angeles. I am in a hotel, so I'm being a little less, um, well, outwardly emphatic. Inwardly, I'm as emphatic as ever, but outwardly, I'm just trying to be uh, considerate of my uh, neighbors in the hotel here because uh, uh, I do usually get a little bit loud when I record these intros. Um, In any event, I am in Boulder, as I say. Just very briefly, I want to say that it's this city is so beautiful. The weather is great. Uh, I've had some good food in Denver and here. Everybody you pass in the street looks healthy and or high. <laughs> and uh, it's just a great vibe here in here in Colorado. I want to give a quick shout out. I had dinner at Annette in Aurora the other night. Caroline Glover, who was the chef there, was a recent Beard Award winner. Just a wonderful meal. Really enjoyed it. Her team there is just great. 
And then last night I went to a restaurant I was unfamiliar with. Actually, my wife Caitlin made the reservation. Bramble and Hare, also quite charming. Um, uh, had a wonderful meal there. And tonight I'm heading to Frasca Food and Wine, which of course is Bobby Stuckey's really well-known restaurant here. And then Saturday I'm going to Marigold in nearby, I don't know if they pronounce it Leon or Leones or Lions. I'm not sure. Uh, but I'll find out, and when I give my recap of that, I will pronounce it correctly. Uh, and then I'm off to Los Angeles, and if you are go- in Los Angeles, and if you will be at the L.A. Chef Conference on Monday the 17th, this coming Monday, please do say hello to me. I will be there. I'll be there all day. I'll be presenting with Mary Sue Milliken late in the day. And I should mention the conference itself is now sold out, but my friend Brad Metzger, who produces that conference, lets me know that if you are interested in being a part of it, you can still get tickets to the after party, which is happening on Monday night. There will be great food and drink there. And of course, the opportunity to be with a lot of your industry colleagues. If you are in the industry, if you're not in the industry, it's an opportunity uh, to be around a lot of people who, if you listen to this show, I imagine do things that you enjoy and respect. Uh, And there is a link where you can go to check that out on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. Before I get to the body of the show, I do also want to say a quick word about open kitchens and restaurants. Uh, you know, obviously open kitchens are not a new thing. They've, they're something that have been around, depending on what coast you live on or if you live in between the coasts, maybe up to half a century now, certainly for 10, 15 years. And it's something we see more and more of in restaurants. And I personally love it as a diner, uh, but I also love the opportunity to be able to say thank you to the kitchen team at the end of a meal. Uh, I did this again last night uh, at Bramble and Hare. And I don't know, if it's it's always strikes me that I don't see people do that. Uh, maybe it seems to people like you don't need to do that. You paid for your dinner. I guess that's probably true. Uh, maybe it just hasn't occurred to you to do it. Uh, maybe you see a bunch of people back there in baseball caps and you know tattoos and they all seem to be working very intensely. Uh, but I have never... Uh, on the way out of a restaurant, uh, when I've gone up to thank uh, either the chef who often is on the dining room side of the pass or in the window, uh, or uh, the entire team, if uh, oftentimes these days they're you know they're facing out toward the dining room as they're cooking, uh, and it's very easy to just walk by and say, "Hey, thanks everybody. You know, dinner was great, lunch was great. Thank you so much." Um, just a sentence um, or just a thank you. Uh, the same way some people do when they get off an airplane and, you know, they thank the flight attendants as they're walking by or they thank the pilot as they're deplaning. I just want to put in a word for that. You know, people are working really hard back there. Uh, They just cook dinner for you. And uh, I have never, even to the most kind of hardcore-looking crew, uh, said thank you and not had people just absolutely uh, beam uh, in response, well, maybe that's putting it a little strongly, but it's always appreciated. I'll just say that. It's always appreciated. Uh, and I think more people should do that. So I just wanted to put in a word for saying thanks to the kitchen on your way out the door. Running a restaurant means keeping up with the times. And now more than ever, the times keep changing. Luckily, technology has the power to make keeping up a whole lot easier. Bento Box and Clover are now working together to provide restaurants with the technology they need for even more success. From Bento Box's world-class website design and marketing tools to Clover's state-of-the-art solutions for managing point-of-sale transactions and payments, 
every detail that goes into a great hospitality experience is supported and streamlined. So whether you own or operate a restaurant or group of restaurants, you're free to focus more time on human interactions, which of course is what restaurants are all about. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. And speaking of Bento Box and Clover, as regular listeners know, we've been bringing you a limited series of short special report interviews on the subject of restaurants and tech brought to you by Bento Box and Clover. Today, I wanted to talk about food trucks and how operators bring technology to bear in that area. And I thought a perfect person to discuss this with would be Ronnie Mazumdar, who with Chef Chintan Pandaya have been absolutely tearing it up recently with their group Unapologetic Foods, bringing traditional Indian cooking to the United States, mostly specifically in New York City right now, but their aspirations clearly go beyond that. They are one of the big stories of the last year or two with their new restaurants, Damaka and Sema, their chicken concept, Rowdy Rooster, and several more projects that are on the way. One of the less well-known concepts that Ronnie and Chinton have been involved in is Briyani Bowl, and they spell bowl, B-O-L. It is a concept that brings their traditional Briyani Bowls to your home. Uh, They're also available for pickup at some of their locations, but the reason I asked Ronnie on the show was to discuss how they go about managing that business uh, using the technology that is available today. Ronnie first came on the show last year in the midst of the pandemic to talk about opening a restaurant during COVID. That was part of a roundtable conversation we hosted. And I heard from many listeners who, like me, were just knocked out by his smarts, especially for such a young guy. Um, This guy really has an instinct for business, uh, just a natural instinct uh, for hospitality and restaurant concepts. he, he makes it look really easy. I'm sure he's worked really hard to attain uh, the knowledge uh, and instincts that he does have, uh, but I've just been really impressed with what he and Chinton are doing. I was also uh, a customer before this kind of explosion of attention in restaurants of the restaurant Ada in Long Island City. Uh, this was before I met Ronnie or Chinton. I just loved the restaurant and was kind of anonymously dining there with some regularity. Um, so I'm happy for them, and I'm so happy to have him back on the show, and I will get you right now to our conversation. Ronnie, thanks for coming back on the show. You guys are on an amazing streak right now. It's been amazing to watch, as you probably remember, or maybe you don't, because I first met Chinton before I met you. I-, I was an early adopter. I was a regular customer of Adopt before any of us met or knew each other. I was just a fan, but to watch you guys expand has really been something to see. Thank you, Andrew. I'm just so excited to be here talking to you. I cannot stress this enough that our very existence is because of individuals like yourself who believed in us way before so many others came out. That's, I think, what's been going on in many ways. It's not a silver bullet in this industry, right? So when, when people really believe and are excited about something, and that excitement is spread. I think that's really been the vehicle that's been carrying us forward. Thank you for the kind words. I don't think I get that much 
credit, but I, I appreciate being included in the in the group. I, we wanted to talk to you about Briani Bowl and kind of understand how you guys interact with your customers over your site. But before we get into all that, can you just, because I had actually kind of forgotten until I was getting ready to, to speak with you all, but this was kind of what we were calling for a while a pivot, right? The, the origins of this business? Uh, you mean specifically Briani Bowl? Briani Bowl, yes. I don't know the word pivot anymore. I don't know what that means. I just well something you know something that kind of was like a um, a resourceful sort of adaptation during the early days of COVID. Yes and no, and that's what I mean. I think we have heard the word pivot so much. I, I think what has really happened is that we all got maybe a little bit more creative. And pivot is when you're maybe changing a little bit of a course, etc. This is very clearly part of the overall vision that we have set out with. We saw an opportunity where if you were to order biryani, most of the time, if not all the time, you're going to get that in a plastic box that is not even biryani. It's actually a fried rice because the whole technique of how a biryani is cooked is not being followed. So what you think you're eating as a biryani is not the most authentic thing. And that goes across the board on many, many different organizations who are doing that. We saw that as an opportunity. And funnily enough, we wanted to open up a little shop with that's called Biryani Bowl in Essex Market. That was the origin of it. We proposed to Essex Market that we will open a little shop. And they came to us and said, well, what if you did a restaurant instead? And that's what became the maga. Yeah, it's a little bit of a lot of things, but it's just us continuing to push the boundaries and thinking about how we can reach the audience and maintain the integrity of the dishes. So you just use the word authentic. This is what kind of connects uh, Briani Bowl into the overall mission of what's now your your company, uh, Unapologetic Foods, the mission uh, please tell me if it needs fine tuning the way I'm going to express it, but is is to bring, uh, and you know, these words are all sort of, um, in play right now. Right. But either what we would call, uh, some people would call authentic. Some people would call traditional Indian food, food that has not been put through the sort of mainstream ringer of, of, the, of the American, you know, diet and whatnot and serve it the way, you know, it, it would be enjoyed in India. Right. That's kind of broadly speaking, that's the mission. So before we talk about the tech piece, why don't you just, for people who don't know, explain what a biryani is and what the, authentic or traditional version uh, of it would be? Traditional biryani has layers. It's not a stir fry sort of a dish that a lot of people understand it to be. What is happening, first of all, across many restaurants, you make some kind of a gravy with a protein. So it could be chicken or lamb. And then you have your rice that's ready to go. And you're putting all of that, putting in some little biryani masala. So the flavor profile is somewhere there. And you're, you're stirring it together and delivering it to a guest with some garnish. And that's what we understand as what biryani to be. But that's not traditionally what and how a biryani is cooked. Normally, they are cooked in either a larger or smaller pots where you layer. Our biryani has about 16 different layers of different, you know, from mint, cilantro, chili, all the way to the protein and the rice. And it keeps going. And essentially, you put that through an element that's called dam. That means steam cooking. You're putting enough steam where the vapor that the actual protein generates is cooking itself and is kind of melding together with the rice. And that process 
has been missing from our biryani for a very long time. And that is essentially what we wanted to bring to people's homes. And what we realized is we're able to serve people biryani in our restaurants because it comes from the kitchen directly to your table and you can consume it. But how can I get it to your homes? There was no way because the only format is put it in some kind of a plastic container and hope to God that you microwave it and you know whatever version you get, you get. And that's not doing justice to what the dish was ever meant to be. So we created this idea of, and went back to the roots of finding authentic clay pots, created all the layers, sealed them, and now you can order biryani, get it to your house, and you do you know, the dumb you know, portion of it by putting it in an oven. Once it's done, you get the best possible version of biryani you've ever had. Would it, the effect be comparable to like, uh, I mean, I guess the easy example for an American, like what what happens under the top of, of a chicken pot pie or, you know, what happens in like a tagine? Is that is it a similar kind of magic that happens under inside, inside the bowl? Absolutely. And it's not about just doing something for the sake of it, but it's really making sure that the dish that you're meant to consume is the real thing or as close to the real thing as possible. So talk to me about the tech piece. First of all, do you think of what you do as a food truck business? Do you think of it as a delivery business? Do you not feel the need to to put a label on it? Because it, it is kind of an interesting model you guys have. We, as a company, don't even look at it as we're creating a food business per se. I think it's a set of philosophies that we're setting out. And so this is just one spoke on that wheel. Yes. So we have never been bound by saying we only do restaurants of this format. And we therefore, we are a restaurant group. That has never been part of our conversations. Our conversations always rooted from what are we discussing? What conversation? How are we going to move the needle on our cuisine? And we will do what it takes to make that change, to create that impact. And be it, it could be on a food truck, it could be, you know, on a delivery platform, but it really depends on no matter what the format is, is that we never compromise on what that individual dish was meant to be or that experience was meant to be. So the Briani Bowl concept is there's, uh, tell, please tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but you, you have the menu online. By the way, this is in New York and yes. you have the menu online. Uh, there's a cutoff time for, for deliveries for that day. And then the bowls, B-O-L, are yeah. brought to your home, ho- brought to your home by your trucks, correct? Yes. Yeah. You can either pick it up from one of our locations if you're outside of the delivery zone from any of our current locations. And if not, we get it delivered to your doorstep. That's the idea. You must place the order before noon and then between 5 to 8 p.m. you're starting to receive it. So, And you select the time slot of when you wish to have dinner. And the good news of this is you're not bound by the element that, oh my God, it's been 45 minutes, the delivery hasn't happened. It's okay. Because of just the format of how it's been cooked and created, we're not sending you raw meat. So therefore, the foodborne illnesses, all of that has been eliminated. We've done all the hard work for you. You're putting that finishing touch to get that authentic steam that it's meant to have. And how do you make all this work day to day? So people, go ahead and explain it because it's interesting. Yeah, we don't really go out there any kind of hardcore, big marketing. We don't really do much marketing for ourselves to begin with. It's just if somebody feels we're worthy of you know, writing about or talking about, we do. But outside of that, there's no actual marketing vehicle that exists within our company. Um, what ends up happening is it's been a lot of word of mouth and people who are connoisseurs of biryani, they know if they want maybe to have a smaller event at home. They are even somebody who, there's a specific gentleman who lives in the financial district it's his thing on a specific weekday. He'll come back from work and he will open his biryani bowl. 
So this has become a ritual every single week. And one week when he didn't order, we reached out, said, are you okay? And he says, I'm traveling. So it's it's a beautiful way of forming relationships with people. I love that. I love that. That is so you. That's so you guys. Um, that's really great. Uh, do you think this is an area of uh, the industry that's going to evolve? I mean, it's already obviously happening, sure. right? But do you think this is good? Uh, th- this kind of like what Briani Bull does. Do you think this is going to, you know, we hear about ghost kitchens and things like this. Do you think that this kind of, I guess, extension of what uh, restaurants can do or your more kind of holistic view that this will just be part of what a company, a, you know, a food company offers you know they'll have restaurants and then they'll have something like this do you think something like this will become you know a part of the makeup for more and more companies as time goes by because i think it's really cool absolutely i think if there's one thing COVID did and and for us we didn't it wasn't COVID that defined it for us but i think it ended up defining it for the entire industry on a broader scale it blurred the lines of who we are we all grow up identifying ourselves with a title I am a restaurateur. I create fast food ventures, whatever the title is. And we hug that really, really tight and say, this is who I am. Therefore, I can't do the other stuff. And what COVID showed us is, of course we can. If we understand what the nuances are of the guest experiences, what food is and how we have been dealing with it, why aren't we able to create new experiences? And our circumstances kind of forced us to do that. But at the same time, it also made us realize that, oh my God, these boundaries don't really exist. So I think we are really, really seeing a very a point of infliction in this industry where a restaurateur wouldn't necessarily be bound by that title but it's just so much more. We're willing to play. We're willing to go out there and try new things because I think in the end, that's where the whole idea of entrepreneurship or what made us restaurateurs to begin with, you know, where it started, that let's go out there, let's create new things. And I think now it just, the scope got much broader. My thanks again to Ronnie Mazumdar of Unapologetic Foods and Briyani Bowl for joining us. I have linked to both the websites for Unapologetic Foods and to the Briani Bowl site uh, on the episode page for this show at Andrew Talks to Chefs. I encourage you to check them out and support them. And also, separately, a reminder to please visit Bento Box and Clover to learn how they can provide you with the technology you need for more success. Again, their website is getbento.com slash better. So our feature guest today is Reem Asil. Uh, Reem had a new book come out earlier this year, Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. That was published in April. Reem was in New York in July. We met on July 25th. It's been a long time since then. As as regular listeners know, we had a bit of a hiatus toward the end of the summer. Uh, I have been trying to prioritize guests based on, you know, if they had a new book out or something like that. And that's why... Uh, you know, Ariel Fox recently and Jacques Pepin uh, were aired a little bit out of sequence from when they were interviewed. Uh, Reem, I spoke to, like I say, all the way back in July. Her book was already out, which is why I've waited a little bit. Uh, but she actually has a new uh, entertainment project that she worked on actually with Rosario Dawson. It's described in the conversation. And th- Her episode of that series debuts this coming Tuesday, October 18th, so I thought this would be good timing uh, to drop this episode and point you uh, 
uh, toward that. I do link to an article about the series on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. I had never met Reem before. I've known about her forever. She, of course, has Reem's California uh, and uh, has been involved, obviously, in a lot of causes, as many of you listeners probably know. Um, I'm I'm just kind of short-handing that uh, descriptor because we get into a lot of this right up top in the interview, so it would be redundant for me to get into too much of it here. Um, I had never met Reem before, uh, the Beard Awards this past June, uh, I met her. She was one of the few pe- first people, rather, that I met when I arrived at the first party I went to. Uh, when I got to Chicago, our mutual friend Chandra Ram introduced us. And I was really struck, as I imagine many people probably are, by Reem's energy, which is quite positive and quite um, uh, pronounced and um, very engaging. Um, we met again, uh, a couple of nights later, or maybe the next night at the black food folk party at my friend, Eric Williams virtue restaurant. That's kind of a funny story in itself. And I explained in the, also in the interview, uh, why that's funny, or at least I thought it was funny. Um, and, uh, so I won't get into that here. Uh, but I will say that, uh, I do think Reem's book, Arabia, is worth your time. I enjoyed reading it. Um, and I just love this conversation. We do get to the book uh, toward the second half of it, but we, you'll see, just uh, I wanted to talk about some kind of current event type things that are swirling around the industry. Uh, Reem is very unshy about her feelings about these things. I always appreciate people who put their true uh, feelings and views out there. And uh, I think it's a really great conversation. Uh, I had forgotten how sort of jazzed I was when I left it. But when I was listening back and editing the show, uh, I, again, was very uh, engaged. And it's one of my favorite kind of conversations, as you regular listeners know, because um, I think you're going to have that feeling that I know people enjoy of just kind of being there for two people shooting the breeze and kind of talking shop. So um, I don't think I need to say anything more about it. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants. And right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs, the perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Reem Asil. Here you go. Reem, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We just met for the first time uh, at the Beard Awards. The last time I saw you was when I accidentally <laughs> invaded the Black Food Folk uh, party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> accidentally? It was an accident. I'll yeah. have, I'll have, I'm airing episodes before this, so I'll, I'll tell you off air, but yeah. I'll, have, I'll have already shared that story. Yeah. yeah. Um, Yes. I didn't know I was at an event until I'd been there for about two hours. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it was good. That means you melded right in. Uh, (laughs) As I said to the person who made me aware of it, I said, well, for what it's worth, I've been feeling very welcome for the the last two hours. There you go. In any event. um, uh, So before we jump in, uh, tell tell us why you're in New York, what you're doing here um, uh, and, and how you've been enjoying the city so far. Yeah, so I've been here in New York for about 
five days or so. It's been amazing. I'm here promoting my new cookbook, Arabiya, uh, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. And uh, this is kind of, I guess this is the East Coast leg of my book tour. Um, The book came out in April and it's been amazing. I've been, you know, traveling all over the country. Uh, I feel like it was very serendipitous that it came out now as opposed to a year ago (laughs) this book was three years in the making uh because the whole premise of the book is arab hospitality so to be able to actually live out that hospitality and you mean face to face face as opposed to having to do it all by virtually yeah yeah Yeah. um has been awesome but yeah new york is uh you know New York. It's uh, it's big and overwhelming and exciting mm-hmm. and hot. Well, I mean, I'm you're getting used. Us. Yeah, I'm this is being the recorded wave. on the 25th. Yeah. I mean, I think today's finally tomorrow that we'll, we'll have a temperature that doesn't have a nine at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. ironically, I I think I read a headline that the the whole country is going up in flames while San Francisco is sitting under a big uh, blanket of fog. So I, I put a good timing right. for me. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about the heat, but yeah. I'm glad you're enjoying the city. So um, I, I want to talk about the book. I want to get into your, your life. Um, before we do all that, though, can, can we I feel like you're a good person to ask about something that's very much been on my mind. Um, can we just jump yeah. right into the deep end of the pool? Let's do for, it. Even though we barely know there. each other. <laughs> um, you know, I. Um, read a piece uh and i've you know followed your career and we have some mutual friends and um and i've always wanted to have you on the show and then you wrote a piece i have i have no sense of time right now i think it was sometime last year yeah about not wanting to be called chef Chef. (laughs) and this is a show called andrew talks to chefs and i'm like oh i'll never i'm never gonna get reem i'll never get reem on the show was it an infamous piece (laughs) it was it was quite a polarizing piece i had no idea it was how so well first let's explain what the premise was so the premise was that you and i have to be honest i have heard almost exclusively women Mm -hmm. for generations say that they've never liked the word chef that they associate it with all kinds of um, I guess what we would now call toxic masculine Masculine. behavior, you know, Jesse cool, who, uh, has been on the show, who maybe a good dear dear friend of mine as well, you know, Jesse said back in the day, she, you know, told her now ex-husband, you know, can you just call me a cooker person? Like she never, (laughs) she didn't like that word, you know, and I've heard it from multiple generations. So what you said to me, I'm not saying you like copped it from these people, but mm. this was the latest iteration of a sentiment that I feel like has been out there for a long time. And you wrote about it and you, you, you connected some dots of things that had been in the news, uh, in the recent past. Mm-hmm. Um, but first of all, what prompted you to write that piece? And then, um, I'll tell you where I was going with this topic. <laughs> okay. Is this okay that well, we're yeah, starting no, with this? This is great. I mean, I think that I feel like the people who really understood really got what I was getting at, which is that it's, you know, changing a word is not going to change the industry. You know, what I was doing was exploring, exploring the contradictions of striving for a singular title um, of leadership. That's all I was doing. I wasn't 
trying to get at anyone who wants to call themselves a chef. I call myself a chef. That's yeah. what we use for better or worse. It's, you the were just profession. nominated for outstanding right. chef. Right. It still <laughs> yeah, says it on your, a, yeah. it's one of the many designations yeah. on for your. For me, it's like the idea of striving for, to be a chef. As a be all end all. A be all end all that creates these dynamics that no matter who you are, woman, black, white, anything in between, uh, that doesn't really solve the problem that it's rooted in white supremacy, patriarchy, all of these things. Uh, so I was trying to hint at that contradiction. Um, and for me, I felt uncomfortable in that moment of the news cycles. And these are things that have been going on for a long time. Yeah. I was uncomfortable with maintaining that status quo. So that's all I was saying was that until something really changes, I don't want to be a part of uplifting the status quo mm -hmm. of this idea of the singular chef being celebrated for everything mm -hmm. at the expense of everyone else. Right. And that even I, as a woman of color owning a restaurant in my kitchens, uh, can fall into those dynamics uh, of mm -hmm. what people expect of a chef and what they should be and not be. Got it. So, so this, this I was, was explaining an internal contradiction. I was pointing out what everybody already knows about kitchens. Uh, and yeah, people were coming at me. I mean, a lot of like uh, and white male chefs and everybody were like, I really appreciate that. I face this contradiction. Thank you for putting words to what I felt for a very long time. And that was really amazing. But also I had a lot of people who were like, don't you know, who are you to tell me? Like, this is what I've been striving for for my whole career. Like, why are you trying to take that away from me? You don't speak for me. This was stuff that fragility. was expressed privately, like uh, DMs. Privately, and... but also I was trolled. I mean, if you go back and look to my post mm -hmm. a lot, why you why you have your chef on your title and your IG? Take off chef, you imposter. Like, mm -hmm. just really people taking it really personally. Got it. Yeah. So here's, <laughs> thank you for sharing all that. Women for... too. I mean, it was like... Oh, yeah. How dare None you of this do that? stuff is yeah. is is completely uh, one side or the other. Yeah. Although I think I'm going to guess more men than women were probably upset <laughs> yes. by that. But so here's where I was going with this. I I would just love your free association rumination on this question um, mm -hmm. because we met at the James Beard Awards. Yeah. And you know there there that whole culture of awards. Um, conference, like who gets to speak at conferences. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we saw some of this around the 50 best last week. Yep. Um, uh, you know, it, there is a lot of change afoot. There's more representative judges and, and, and councils and, and nominees and winners. Um, there's also still very much a dissatisfaction, uh, anger, whatever, you know, runs the gamut with all these systems, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I'm curious to know, somebody who is in your place in this ecosystem, in the restaurant ecosystem, who does point out stuff like this, um, but who is celebrated, right? I mean, you were just nominated for one of the big awards. Mm -hmm. um, we were at the, you know, we were at these events, mm -hmm. um, uh, but there's still things that, um, 
need to be dealt with. And there are still things that people are being very vocal about, right? Even as they're participating in, in this, right? And I'm just wondering where, where does where this do question I make sense? That? Yeah. Well, no, for you, what's it like just yeah. navigating these things? Like, what's it like for you deciding whether or not to have gone <laughs> to Chicago? Like, I imagine that was oh, yeah. a decision for yeah. you. And yeah. just to put my cards on the table, I mean, I have to be honest, my sponsor for this show, my law, I've had others come and go. My yeah. longstanding sponsor is Sam Pellegrino, uh -huh. but I'm under no editorial control. <laughs> I don't have much interest in awards. Uh -huh. You know, this is my fifth year doing this podcast. Yeah. I have never submitted it for um, consideration yeah. for anything. Yeah. I don't. I don't need it. I think it's, a lot of this stuff is politics and popularity, as right. I like to say. Who's friends? Who knows who? Who has the best PR company? Yeah. You know, all this stuff. I just, it's, I've said it before. For me, the DMs I get from my listeners, the people who come up to me when I'm in their restaurant, like that's, that's all, what matters, that's all right? I care about. Yeah. And it sounds hokey, but the, the truth is I've never put the show up for anything. I'd, so anyway, my question yeah. for you is, we're we're just yeah. where are you in the navigation of, of this moment of the sea of contradictions as i call them um yeah it's crazy i was if that's not an uncomfortable question oh no not at all i mean i talk about this all the time it's so funny because i am and i'm sure i'm sure you know this somewhat infamous <laughs> infamous uh, infamous yeah but i'm like the media sweetheart too i you mean I, infamous because you're so because i'm outspoken about, about, about yeah. my politics yes. i'm outspoken about my palestinian identity yes. any i mean just to be palestinian and to proclaim that is political right and right and, it's and a small it's feat that you and i are yeah. sitting here talking <laughs> yes. civilly. yes right um so but but still and I still manage to, so I'm on these fringes of social justice and, you know, I got into this work not to be this famous restaurateur, but to visibilize my community, to provide something to my community, to provide good jobs, all of these things. And holding on to that and maintaining, you want to be celebrated for that too, because you can't just speak to the choir, right? You want to speak mm -hmm. to the masses of what does it take to change our food ecosystem? Um, However, you have a food media that's like loving this, maybe eating it, adjusting it a little bit, and then creating this like hot social justice, you know, activist turned chef narrative, brown woman that makes it in the food world so that you can too. And mm -hmm. that's very uncomfortable because I don't want to uphold this facade <laughs> that the food industry has changed. It has, we're making changes. That's not to the, um, we're doing that on the ground day by day. Right. Uh, but I don't want the food media to take my story and use it as like a self-aggrandizing, like, look, we're, we're in a different place now. Right, like people who pointed to the election. Right, yeah. or people who pointed to the election of Obama as like, now we're in a post-racist society. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. that kind of yeah. that kind of thing. Not, yeah, it's like, no, I haven't made it in the food world. Like, getting um, accolades, great. People are paying attention. I don't, I'm not sure why, it, you know, it might be a sprinkle of melanin. <laughs> you know, that's what it felt like in the beginning. Now I feel like people are really changing from the inside. Just not at the top where... We really need the change, mm -hmm. right? The decision makers mm -hmm. in organizations like the James Beard Foundation and the 50 World's Best and so on and so forth. Those folks at the top are still trying to maintain status quo. So um, where was I getting at this? Uh, yeah, well, it's this, a tricky place to be is like that about, I want yeah. to meet 
I, I do feel like we, to make the change that we want to make, we do have to uh, not mainstream, but speak to a wider audience. And so I'm constantly feeling like I am code switching a lot. Um, you know, I got here to New York on Wednesday night. I was at Archistratus Books, which is a really progressive cookbook store in um, Brooklyn, where I, the title of the... Uh, the title of the event was called Down with Occupation, Up with Nourishment. We were talking about food sovereignty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the next day I was on the Today Show saying Arab hospitality is for everyone, right. you know, and both are true. Right. <laughs> so like we don't have to live in these dichotomies. So I try to remind myself mm -hmm. of that. Like I need to meet people where they're at um, and have this universal language of food, but it can't stop at food. Right. And that's where I feel like uh, both awards and food media tend to do that like tends to be self-congratulatory and like oh food connects people it breaks down barriers but i'm like the food alone doesn't do that it's like what happens after mm -hmm. and um this time this this time around when i decided to go to the james beard i mean let's be real a lot of my friends were there i'm like this <laughs> like a big old party right but was um, that a, was yeah. that a, was that a like was there a was there a short process of deliberation just internally totally totally internally like do i i know that i i, I mean i did not expect to win um i but being there and having presence there like i'm not um I'm not Solejo. I can't just not show up and then win an award. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. I wish I could be at that caliber. One day maybe I can be. And what do you mean by not, that, though? I just, um, I don't have that visibility yet. And so if I, if I was important enough and people knew the work that I was doing, then not showing up and making a statement would mean a lot more. But I'm not there yet. So to take up space mm -hmm. in a place where, you know, Arab I mean, there are like the three Arab chefs nominated. That was the first time I ever seen that in one. Right. Uh, I felt like it was important to take up that space when given it, um, mm -hmm. but certainly not to win the award. It's to it's in all those side conversations, interacting with other chefs, connecting with people on a deeper level. And I did that and that felt like I accomplished what I was there to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a community that is really celebrating me like the like the customers and the community that backed me to where and I don't take that for granted I don't take this platform for granted so mm -hmm. if I'm afforded a platform by being part of the award ceremony then I will gladly take that but I'm not disappointed if I didn't win an award because sure. I've been on uh I've I guess you can say that, like I've been on the voting um, mm -hmm. committee, so I understand what it's like to be on the other side. Right. You vote for the people you know. <laughs> it is. A, or it it's is. hard to. It's right. hard to it's not hard have to that not, bias. I mean, I had a thing. I, I didn't do it this year because I was on a deadline. Yeah. But I've been a. I don't know if we're allowed to say. It. Who cares? Yeah, I, I but think I've been they a, I, I've who been were, a, were on the the you boards. Know, I've been a judge for one of the media yeah. writing categories. Yeah. Now I'm I'm you know I'm in my fifties. Uh, I was kind of like this even when I was younger, though. But, you know, uh, there were people who I was looking over, you know, the nominees. And there were a couple of people who, you know, I, I, I know a little too much about them and I don't really respect yeah. them personally. Not the work. Yeah. Not the words on the page or yeah. the screen. But they're personal. But I just am like, mm, I don't think that person has much character. Or, yeah. oh, I had kind of a 
running with that person. Now, I very, you know, rigidly was able to separate my personal experience from voting, you know, but I'm also mature, you know, I'm at a place in life where hopefully you recognize that. I was like, I don't know how many people, I'm sure there's people who are going through things and if they see someone they don't like or, you know, in the chef world, it could be somebody who fired them once yeah. or something. I don't also know if people the, rise, but this is why I say awards to me are well, inherently flawed. They're flawed, but also like nobody's really, I think if that person doesn't have character, they don't, I don't care how good their writing is. They don't deserve to get an award. I guess. Yeah. I, that's, that's my, yeah. that's I mean, my at take some on level it. though, these you know, things are like, subjective. I think they're subjective. Like who can, who is going to be able to tell somebody what, yeah. you know? So I feel like, oh, I wish these ceremonies could just be like celebrating the trends and celebrating these groups of people who are doing good work. Like well, I would that, be fine with that, you know, years ago, because awards provide access and right. the wrong people get the access <laughs> years ago. It might've been uh, Jeff Gordon used to come on uh -huh. periodically when he did the best new restaurant list for, yeah. um, Esquire. Esquire. Yeah. And you know, I once asked him like, what does there have to be a number one? Yeah. Like, can it just be the class of, yeah, 22, exactly. right? And it's just here, and maybe it's not even always like a, a clean 10 people or 20 people. Yeah. Here's a group of people we think deserve for you to know about them, yeah. right? And that's exactly. it. And there's no number one and there's no number 20. Totally. And it's just the class of whatever that, yeah. that fit, you know. And he very honestly said like, oh, you know, but you kind of need, you know, for marketing, you kind of need that hero. Again. You need, or or <laughs> like who's going to win it, you know, right. the number one. Um, anyway. Um, but then you have people just striving for awards, uh, you know, that's like when you create that. Well, and there are even there the best, whole, best of us are. There's a whole class of restaurateur who does that's that. all they it's do. It's like sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's a goal. Yeah. Stated goal. Yeah. Um, OK. One last thing about Chicago. Yeah. Because for me, as a Caucasian, this was very I heard. Yeah. An, you probably heard more of this than diverse. I did. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, which was great. But what I was going to say is I heard part of it was so what happened was I was at um, I hadn't seen Marcus Samuelson in years and I Marcus and I knew each other like in the 90s, like and I hadn't seen him certainly since before COVID. And I had done a panel on Sunday out in Chicago. I had moderated and then he was on a panel right after mine. And then after it, I said, we got to get together. You know, it's been a long time. And he said, come to dinner tonight. So they were going to Virtue. Uh-huh. And which is where the black where, food yes. folk party was. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Obviously I wasn't on the invite list, but um, I guess he had never eaten there. So Eric Williams, who happens to be a very dear friend of mine, I guess was just accommodating Marcus in his group in a corner mm -hmm. of the party, basically. Yeah. So I got there and I went and I joined and and we were having dinner and and I had my back to the rest of the and it was late on a Sunday but I just figured a lot of people were in town for the beards you know yeah and then Don Padmore from the Beard Foundation who I just met that day came and sat down next to me and we were talking and she said so how did you end up at this event and I said what event and she said you're at the Black Food Folk party yeah I had no idea yeah but I that's, had no idea I mean Black Food Folk event is to celebrate Black yes. Food yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. But <laughs> but the reason I bring the story up is at my table, um, at the after party after the awards on Monday, at various points throughout the weekend, I heard always someone of color say something to the effect of to another person of color, did you ever think you would see this at the Beard Awards? 
did you ever think you would see this? Can you believe this? Isn't this great? You know, and that's an amazing thing. It really is. So from that standpoint, I just would love, and then we'll get into your personal story. Yeah. But I would just love your, uh, it looks like something even just came over you a little as I yeah. asked this. Your eyes got a little misty. Just what was that aspect of it like for you? Because it seemed to be a very sincere, emotional reaction that I don't even know how many people I was with were mm -hmm. having. Yeah, I mean, like even when um, uh, Jeff Rico uh, from Nixta won the first award and he was tearing eyes and talking about for all the taqueros, like I was teary-eyed mm -hmm. for him. Like it did feel There was an acceptance different. award. There was an yeah, acceptance speech acceptance entirely speech in Spanish. In Spanish, yeah. yeah. Like all my friends, people who I've like admired from afar and uh, all of us in one place, it was definitely amazing and I, I feel like transformative. Like we're creating our own little niche within this weird construct mm -hmm. um and that's what we do we create our own worlds we're trying to create the world that we want to see whether or not we will get recognized but it's nice to get recognized um yeah so for me it's about those connections and seeing people and connecting with them um that that was really amazing it feels good to be a part of this growing uh group still a small group i mean mm -hmm. but in years past, I would have never went to the James Beard because I would have felt out of place. Mm -hmm. Like I had, you know, I didn't have to code switch once when I was there. And that's amazing to yeah. be in the most prestigious awards. Well, I'll take that back. I had to code switch one time during that with weekend. a board member from the James Beard, who I will not name. Um, and it was like the most uncomfortable. Like I went back to my early days of being a chef. So it's like it's a good reminder that. You mean you felt like you had to kind of put yourself like yeah. Back in the yeah. closet a little bit. Yeah. 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 Um, and put on like the universal. Yeah. Right. Like I'm just happy to be here as right, a chef. Right, right, you know right. that kind of thing, or even like prove that I had something to prove. Mm -hmm. And that did not feel good. Got it. And I feel like that probably has felt. That's what it's felt like for chefs of color, for a very long time in those spaces. Oh, I. Yeah. yeah I mean, I can only I can only imagine it. Yeah. But it definitely it was. I had stopped going. I didn't go to when I moved to Chicago because travel and all. I'm on my own. Yeah. I'm on my own dime. Yeah. Uh, I went in 2019 yeah. and I went this that I went this year. Yeah. And, um, you know, but I had gone in the past like every year for a period of time. And it, it's a, it was a whole different vibe. Yeah. It was a whole different vibe. Yeah. And I thought it was beautiful. I it thought was, it was great. Yeah. No, um, it, it felt really good to be there. And, all the all I mean, let's be real. It's been two years of pandemic and isolation. So I think for a lot of us chefs, we're just starting to grapple with that now. It was like delayed <laughs> where the rest of the world was at home. Right. Dealing with all the mental health, emotional yeah. stuff. So yeah. there was a lot of pent up energy. Yeah. Well, as Tony Bourdain used to say, the industry deserves a party once We a year. do, right? Yeah. We deserve to celebrate ourselves. Right. And, no, lover, and just be, no lover of the Beard Foundation. No code but, switching, yeah. just being ourselves. And that's really how I felt good. when I was there. All right. Thank you for sharing all yeah. that. I thought, you, I thought you'd be a good person to pass. Yeah. Um, just to get a vibe on where we are right now, because yeah. it does feel like so much of this stuff is very much in flux. Yeah. Um, I was like, the they, they were never going to put me up on stage I might 
What do you mean? Make oh. some proclamations about Did award ceremony. Did you have ceremony. something ready to go? <laughs> no, I did okay. not. But I had some ideas if I would get up there. Well, but part I, of the reason I I'm wanted not to, safe enough, you well, know, not the, yet. Part of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is um, Jenny Dorsey, yeah. you know, who's been on this show, yeah. was just the a I'm month. on a board of one of her projects. Well, she was yeah. just, uh, you know, a 50 next honoree. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you she know. She had an amazing speech. And yeah. made a speech. And it was a, a bit, what would we say? Was it subversive? Maybe I would say intentionally. Yeah. 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 And and, you know, that to me was one of the things that made me just want to explore this topic a yeah. little bit, because that what do you do if you're Jenny Dorsey and you yeah. win something like that and you have but you have some, you know, unresolved yeah. uh, issues that you want to deal with. I don't mean personal do issues. You... you have some unresolved complaints that you want to lodge. I'm trying to find creative, subversive ways to do it because it is nuanced, and I, I'm I'm not really the type that's righteous about anything. I really try to allow space to meet people where they're at. But yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say my piece about award ceremonies about the industry anytime anyone asks me. Um, but I, during the pandemic, everybody was, all the media journalists asking me how are we going to change the industry? And it was just so frustrating. I'm like, stop asking me. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm just trying to save my restaurants here. Like I don't proclaim to know everything, but, um, but I had this opportunity to actually co-write a short with a friend who has a company called Offside Productions. And the series is called Normal Ain't Normal. Okay. And it's all about going back to normal after the pandemic, you know, and at the time I was talking about how I don't want to go back to normal. I want the industry to just die and rebirth. Right. Which unfortunately, I don't I don't think we quite got there. The reset didn't happen. <laughs> the reset quite got there. Yeah. The reset definitely didn't happen. didn't happen. Yeah. It's very, very sad. But, you know, at the time when we were writing this, I uh, had this fantasy of when people asked me this question of just like telling it like it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's a short of me playing myself and it's uh, me accepting an award at the, <laughs> at the CIA. <laughs> Finally, a Palestinian infiltrating the CIA, I would say. Okay. <laughs> um, and I accept this award and I'm basically like, Fuck you and fuck you and fuck you, DoorDash. Can you I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you have to yeah. do me a favor. Everyone asks that, but then they only do it once. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, please do it more than yeah, once. Yeah, it's very, very like, it's it's co comedy. And so it's there's filmed some as, cameo. The, as the speech? Yeah, well, it's a whole it's a whole thing of me running through my restaurant okay. and a whole stream of thought. But, but the last scene is me accepting this award ceremony and kind of giving it like it is, telling it like it is about the industry um, and how people need to stop celebrating the singular chef. So it, it's fun and I had fun with it and I think it really will resonate with people. Of, you know, normal wasn't normal. Yeah. It's not normal that we have people working in our industry who can't afford to eat themselves. Mm -hmm. That's not normal, mm -hmm. you know? And so I go through that and I think it's exciting to see more people using these creative outlets to mm -hmm. talk about it. Great. So people can see that when and where. Um, it's a digital series that come out, is coming out, but we're premiering it in uh, Oakland on September 14th and okay. down in LA in September, uh, end of September. Great. Yeah. Great. I look forward to seeing that. Yeah. So, um, all right, let's get to the matter at hand. Uh, we're ostensibly here to talk about your book. Yes. Um, just, I don't want to mispronounce it. What yeah. is the uh, real 
way to pronounce the title. You go, As, ah, ah, yeah, no, that's Arabia. what I mean. Say it again. Arabia. Arabia. There you go. Okay. You got it. Well, I grew up. I grew up. <laughs> you with, grew up speaking. Uh, I grew up Hebrew? with Cuban. No. Cuban. No, no, no. I grew up oh, in Miami, Florida, with a Cuban yeah. stepmother and a whole yeah. Cuban set of relatives. Oh, cool. Um, so the role. It's you kind go, of a rolling roll R. R. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's why I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. And the sub full subtitle. You had it down so well. Uh, recipes from the life of an Arab in diaspora. In diaspora. Yeah. Right. So let's. Um, that was a controversial subtitle. People were like, because you really want to say diaspora? It? Oh, diaspora? Yeah. That, like, I feel like that's like, I'm a, like a happy, that's a happy word for me. It's a reclamation. But isn't, but isn't diaspora kind of in vogue the last several years? Yeah. I feel like no, a lot of I people have used it in their, like JJ, when he did his cookbook, oh. the thing he did with Alexander between Harlem and heaven. That was, dia said diaspora? I think it was in the subtitle. It was yeah. definitely the entire yeah. no, focus of the book. Now, like, yeah. I'm like, what do you cook? People are like, diasporic food. I'm like, yeah. oh, cool. It's like a I feel hit. like that's a kind yeah. of a in word right I think, now. I think for some people, because this was supposed to be this like joyful, uplifting book, the I, I do think like with uh, diaspora can be seen as a sad word, you know, it conjures up displacement, at least for Arabs. Right. And I don't. Or um, what's the word? Um, disillusion. Yeah. Or, I mean, disillusion, literal, like coming apart. Yeah, coming or apart. Or fragmenting. Exactly. Or, right. But for me, it was a really uplifting word. It's like to be in diaspora is to have a bigger community than you ever could have had if you were well, stuck in one place. Right? right. And you also there's a there's a throwaway line in the book. Um where uh, you say everything good travels. It's true. Do you even remember writing that line? I, it's, in right. in yeah. it's in one of the chapter openers. It's in one of the chapter openers. But everything good travels, and this is good. Because yeah. so, someone had said to you they were surprised to see a dish somewhere. I forget exactly what dish yeah. it was in re reference to. And your kind of explanation was, well, everything good travels, and this is good. So yeah. here it is. I think right? it was to Mahamara. That might have been yeah. it. That yeah. might have been it. Yeah, because um, uh, it's so close to a romesco sauce. Mm -hmm. That must have been. <laughs> that could have been. I like to think the Arabs created everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what? When did you? Because you talk a lot in the book. You, it's the book doubles as a kind of an autobiography yeah. of sorts. Yes. Um, and for people who don't know, and I'll set a little of this when I record the intro later. You come from a background as a community organizer. Mm -hmm. I've also seen you refer to it as a as a worker organizer or a labor, yeah, organizer. labor organizer. Yeah, so I I've, organized in the union. So I've heard you use both those yeah. terms. Um, this is a profession that's been both elevated and yeah. reviled. It, well, and also <laughs> and the, the other side, right? It was large. You know, when Obama, you talk about this in the book, yeah. when Obama came to prominence, yeah. he had been a community organizer, and we all saw footage of him like walking into you know, the projects with like a thing of donuts and, yep. you know, with the meet the work, you know, his yep. team and, you know, and then the, his political opposition <laughs> used it as a put down. Right. right. So it's, it's become this very loaded term. Um, uh, just by way of background, can you just tell people what exactly is an organizer, a community organizer? <laughs> it's such a vague thing and it conjures up so many vague notions. Up my, uh, For, my definitions, yeah. but yeah, I mean, uh, an organizer is simply somebody who brings people together to realize their collective power and change systems. Right. And, and actual, uh, like, actual real tangible wins in their lives right right, right. um and it is a job it's a job so you're I, usually in the employ of like some kind of an organization right. or to a, a, mean, a means to an end for me like tra transformative organizing is about people really seeing their power so it doesn't actually matter what they win 
it's the journey to get there that they, you know, the act of going from someone who wouldn't even tell me what they made an hour to delegating to the boss to say, we deserve rights on the job. That to me is the organizing piece. Obviously we want to win tangible benefits in people's lives, but that's the long game. Mm -hmm. Um, So organizing is really about helping people find, uh, the way that I describe it is helping people find their voice, whether in their neighborhoods or in their jobs. Cause that's, those are the two places that I organized. Got it. And this ultimately, we'll tell this story in a minute. This ultimately proved, what do we say, unfulfilling or frustrating? Frustrating. Which to me, anyone I've ever met who's engaged in this kind of work, like my hat is off to them. Yeah, because it's I have to think it's like a Sisyphean life. <laughs> like, <laughs> look at what's going on in this country right yeah. now. Like, how do you ever feel like you're getting a real toehold? How yeah. do you ever feel like any wins are, are permanent? How do you ever feel yeah. like you're not a part of this unbelievable minority fighting against you know yeah. a machine right it seems this is another moment where yeah. something's clearly come out like you look like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders it really as is. i say this but where did the the instinct to do that work come, come from? from you talk a lot about your family in the book you talk, yeah. tell an amazing story about your mom yeah uh, was... when somebody uh a regular occurrence in your childhood <laughs> Well, you tell this story. You some kids said, <laughs> "Some kids said, why don't you go back to Arabic?" And yeah, you said, and said, "Why don't go you go back, back to, to Italian?" Italian. <laughs> right? Because there is no place called Arabic. Yeah, my mom took things into her own hands. Well, you I don't say know what happened. A... She definitely, you know, grabbed him by the shirt and told her, told him never to mess with me again. <laughs> well, there was that, and then you tell this story where you they showed a very insulting um, video yep. at school. Uh, just t- talking about the Arab world and it was this very unflattering portrayal. I don't, yeah. I don't want to get into the description yeah. of it, but really kind of yeah. insulting and, yeah. and uh, worse than a stereotype. It was something I've never yeah. heard, yeah. you know, but, and then your mother said, I, uh, you guys need to have you. She went, she went to the school and yeah. said, you need to have something more appropriate. And if necessary, I'll design it and I'll teach it. Yeah. Right now that is, yeah. that is a big, bold and I say yeah. all this in the best way, right? That is a strong person, right? Oh, yeah. My mom was not a diplomat. I, I say that in the thing. I was like, she's an advocate, you know? Right. There's no diplomacy here. It's like she, she really understood what justice was and stood by it, right? And was willing to put and herself on the, put line herself on the line is for it. Is this where it starts for you? Is this where your sense of... <sighs> you know, it's it's so many things. It's, it's funny writing this book. I... It, like you said, it's, it reads almost like an autobiography. It's a somewhat iterative, not, not quite linear, but a journey of mm-hmm. how I got to my sense of purpose and how food, you know, telling yeah. that story through the language of food. And so I had these almost like vignettes, right? Mm-hmm. Essays that um, had themes. And as I went deeper into the themes, other themes came up. So... There were two major essays that uh, had characters in them. I mean, all of them, all of the essays had different characters who really um, shaped the way I am and what I believe in in the world, right? So right. one who of them what, actually- like the Buddhist might, might yeah. call like your teachers. Yeah, well, they're not people that I gave 
gave credit to to be my teachers until now writing the book. No, right, it's but in, in, life, in hindsight, they, were, they functioned as yeah, yeah. So my dad was actually the organizer. My mom was the the fighter, the advocate. She's the one who'll take it to the streets. But an organizer is so much more than just someone who's fighting the power, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is important, but the organizing that sort of deep community building. My dad was the one who used to do that. And I took that for granted growing up, seeing him. He was the diplomat. He would bring other communities together. He was the head of the, uh, I'm not sure if this made it into the book, but he used to be the president of the Islamic Association and he would run interfaith groups. And um, my mosque was like people from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. So it used to be just a small Arab community, but he brought in the black community and the Pakistani community and the Indian community. And he really brought uh, people together. And we should say he this, understood was in, this was in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, yeah. in a very small suburb of Massachusetts. When he first got to the States, the first thing he did was open up uh, white pages when they existed and look up anybody with a Muslim last name and call them up and introduce himself. So he was the community builder. And I didn't I really took that for granted until I went back to Syria with him in 2010 and realized all of his history um, as going in and organizing again, you know, for democracy, for mm -hmm. against, you know, what was a really repressive regime in Syria. So uh, both my mom and my dad had different parts in that. But my mentors and my affinity for social justice were really the people who were on the front lines of the civil rights movement. Um, I, I talk about this in my introduction, you know, my opening up my eyes to the history in this country, it was my history teacher from the Bronx who took us down to the deep South. And we met with folks in Mississippi and all of a sudden it clicked to me that Mississippi looked like Gaza and I didn't have to feel as strange as a child of immigrants, right? Because I was a stranger in a strange land. I'm like, what is my struggle? And I was like, maybe my struggle is really connected to the struggle of people in this country. And if we can find the common themes and the elements, mm -hmm. then maybe I can, uh, you know, help my people <laughs> by helping other communities. Yeah. And so, yeah, I dedicated my life to social justice. I was, you know, even from when I was in college, I was organizing in the Justice for Janitors campaign. So I always had this affinity for what was right and what was not right. You know, what deep in my bones felt like injustice. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have words for it until right. I connected with communities in struggle. Um, so 2010, yeah. you make this, you, you just refer, you make, you go overseas. Uh, you were at a point, we, I, we mentioned this a minute ago, where you were... Um, Burnt out. I know is that it's the like way an to overused it? word, right? But well, working in the nonprofit sector, that deep transformative organizing that I had fell in love with. You know, I had moved to Oakland in 2003 when the anti-war movement was really taking steam mm -hmm. and like learning about the history of the Black Panther movement and like all of these things were outside the realms of the nonprofit world. And mm -hmm. here I am in this nonprofit sector where people are telling you how to run your campaigns, that we have to turn out 200 people to this rally and like the people I was, organi I was organizing couldn't even afford to have childcare or feed they're children. How am I going to try to turn right. them out to a rally? Like it right. just felt really there was a dissonance between this deep rooted 
you know, long-term relationship building organizing that I had fallen in love with. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't know what it was that we were fighting for anymore. The people wow. that I was organizing didn't know what that, sure as hell didn't know what that was. I feel like I had lost my voice. I was working around the clock. Just that something had to give. Mm -hmm. and yeah. yeah it sounds like you were a little bit broken. I was. The way you describe it. I was, yeah. yeah. I had put my all my eggs into this basket. This is my purpose. I'm yeah. an organizer. And after eight years of doing it, I had, it, it was hard to see the fruits of your labor. So you, you're overseas. Yeah. You go to what you, unfailingly, other interviews I've listened to with you, you always use the same phrase, a street corner bakery. Yeah. What is, what is, it, what exactly do we, do you mean when you say a street corner? Because that is a phrase you never deviate from that you don't ever yeah. just say a bakery you always yeah. say street corner street bakery corner. yeah what does that mean to you well for me street corner uh the idea of intersection has always been something on my mind that um as someone who's neither here nor there a stranger in a strange land uh the idea of intersectionality kind of roots roots someone in place it feels like an anchor and mm -hmm. so these street corner bakeries for me really are symbolic of that now what was every bakery that i went to and explored on a street corner probably not but this idea of like where something meets something uh we say the manusha meets the movement mm -hmm. that you don't have to be one thing or the other and so this was an intersection of my life i was at a crossroads so to speak to use a, mm -hmm. another term um and walking into these bakeries and feeling life for the first time in a very long time just felt like it was serendipitous that the the universe was telling me you're at, you're at this crossroads and you don't have to leave the thing the road behind it's just the meeting of another path mm -hmm. and that path you can was roll, food right you can no pun intended but you can roll that into yep. a something pers better pursuit. Yeah. yeah so before we talk about the the you know the creation of your first place um california it's in the look. That's how I feel about California. California. I almost my both my twins are off to college Aww. next month. My wife and I almost made the decision to move Aww. to Cal. I would have gone southern, but the best coast. I love, I, I, I love LA it there. is calling me actually. I, I, love, I do I, love LA. I love it out there. Yeah. But um, what for you? Um, like so many people yes. who are associated with the California Food Society, you're from elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, most, a lot of. Well, maybe most. You know, we mentioned Jesse a few minutes yeah. ago. Jesse's from this coast, um, from Pennsylvania. You know, uh, Alice Waters is from New Jersey. Yeah. John, you know, like um, I'm from Boston. You're from huh? Boston. You're Boston. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of people. Uh, who Michael McCarty, who had Michael's, still does, yeah. right? Was from uh, the Northeast of the United States. Like a lot of people from the origins of what we call like the California food movement to yeah. now are from elsewhere. What 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 drew you there? What was the what was the tractor beam of California for you? Well, honestly, if I'm going to tell the truth, it was to get as far away from Boston as possible. <laughs> we appreciate uh, honesty here. <laughs> but I honestly felt like I was always a Californian trapped in an East Coaster's body. When did you visit for the first time? Um, well, my um, so my mom's side of the family immigrated to Northridge, California in the early 90s, right? Mm -hmm. When the big earthquake hit. That's why I say it's like such a travesty that my family always tends to end up in places where there's or disaster. Trash, 
For people who don't know, Northridge is, uh, well, now everyone has a cell phone, but the 818 area code, it's like, it, it's in, it's it's the northern, it's on the northern side of yeah. Los Angeles. It was a, yeah. where the big, big earthquake the, there happened There was a huge the one 90s. in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. and my grandparents' home was at the epicenter. Oh, wow. My brother was living there at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they, you know, that the climate, the terrain, you, you, you wouldn't be surprised they had immigrated to Greece and then to LA. Got it. Um, so we were always visiting my grandmother and she's a very prominent figure in this cookbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the matriarch of the family. So, you know, as, as people in diaspora, we're all over the world, all over the country. We would always visit her home in Northridge in the summers. So I always grew up going there. And you always liked it. Uh, yeah, I loved it. Sun, swimming, family. I mean, you know, when you live in living in a suburb and you're not part of neighborhood and mm-hmm. it's yeah, it feels very isolating. So California was definitely had a special place in my heart. Um, but I just by coincidence, I knew that I didn't want to go to L.A. because L.A. had this. I, even I knew as a, a 19 year old that it, it didn't have that progressive uh, nature that I I really wanted to immerse myself in more politics that were in LA was more like Hollywood yeah flash. Hollywood yeah, yeah I didn't feel comfortable Shallow. in that yeah. I was the hippie in my family yeah. for sure I'm like the I, I'm still called the hippie the free spirit so you plugged right into all that history yeah so I um, my what? uncle happened to be living in uh, the Bay Area and I reached out I was at a very very low point in my life I um you know near death experience of i knew that if i continued school i was going to tufts university at the time which is a very mm-hmm. small liberal arts college that i literally literally felt like i was going to die wow and so it was that kind of hail mary like call my uncle can i live with you didn't have any expectations knew that the bay area was a more progressive uh place to live a place where there was more diversity. <laughs> and so I did. I made a really courageous move. Uh, and I, just like everybody else, left my heart in San Francisco <laughs> and wanted to live there more permanently, but couldn't afford to. And that was where I discovered Oakland. That was right, the sure. cheaper place to live yeah. at the time. And at the right time. There. Now it's like. <laughs> and right there. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the kind of. Um, political and advocacy history of the Bay Area, because one of the you mentioned that one of uh, the places that you trained when you decide to shift gears dramatically. What's the name of the bakery? You Arizmendi Bakery. Yeah, Arizmendi. It has an affiliation with uh, the cheese cheese board, board, which for people who don't know, is basically across the street from Chez Panisse, predates Chez Panisse. Right. And is there since the 70s. It's part of the uh, it's part of the texture of the history of Berkeley, right? It's just like people imagining different models and different, so many pioneers. And I think that's the thing that attracted me, like in the food world, I could be a pioneer, that I could think of something, think of something outside the box. Cause I, uh, you know, I went, I, I had quit my job eventually and enrolled myself in culinary school, but I was looking for not that conventional path. You know, I had Mm -hmm. dabbled in different, you know, I hustled just like everybody else in the food industry. But um, Arizmendi, you know, it was modeled off these systems in the Basque region of Spain. Uh, This priest, uh, it's named after Jose Arizmendi Areta, who literally 
organized uh, after uh, in the anti-fascist movement factory workers to organize so mm-hmm. it felt, felt very rooted in my uh organizing roots and my you know love for workers rights mm-hmm. um and it was i at the time i had only been six months into my culinary uh education and there were i want to say like 160 applications for wow. that cohort and i basically baked like four things from the cheese the cheese board uh cookbook really good cookbook was one of my first cookbooks when i moved to california so it just felt very serendipitous i brought like my scones and baguette basically it was like you have to you have to hire me like Mm -hmm. this is just what it's meant to be this is my path this is what my dream is and yeah i was very lucky to land a spot there so when you decide to open your place right um what you know, you talk about it always in very, um, uh, what would be the right word for this? Meaningful terms. Yes. What kind of place it, rep- what, what it is, um, the diversity on display there, how Absolutely. welcoming a setting it is. I guess this ties into the notion of Arab hospitality. That's right. kind of a defining thing about your book, right? Um, what for you was the vi- was that the vision of the place? You're nodding as I asked the question. Was that always yes what you no. intended it to be? Yeah, I mean, I always imagined my space to be a place for all walks of life to come in. Um, what made me fall in love with food again? I mean, I've always food has always been in the backdrop every time I've gone through cycles of depression. <laughs> um, and the thing about it is the hospitality piece. The uh, bringing people that you wouldn't have otherwise known and making them feel good. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that. I like in 2010, when I went to those bakeries, I wanted to be that baker. I wanted to be part of people's families. I wanted to know people. That was the only thing that was going to bring me out of my depression of that, that feeling of disconnect. Mm-hmm. So I wanted it. Like I wanted this small bakery, uh, kind of like how I saw in Lebanon, but it got bigger. It got bigger as the years went by because what I realized was, you know, bakeries, food spaces are not just places that feed people. Um, they're economic engines, they're third spaces, they're anchor points in communities. And I, you know, once an organizer, always an organizer. And as much as I thought I was just getting into food and I just wanted to like be outside of my head and in my body and, you know, just bake. It was never just about baking for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got into a program called La Cocina, for those folks who don't know La Cocina, it's an amazing program. It, um, it's an incubator program for women-owned food enterprises to help you scale your business. Being in a kitchen with women from all parts of the world that were, you know, not only making delicious food that was really underrepresented, mm-hmm. um, they were providing for their communities. They were employing people. They were scaling. They were, it was really, I, those were mentors for me in the food world. Um, to see that, I was like, ah, I could do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I could provide really good jobs. And I, yeah, my vision got a lot bigger and more ambitious. Okay. <laughs> it's a little too ambitious sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think that I, you know, have my grandfather's blood. I'm an entrepreneur at mm-hmm. heart and mm-hmm. I really leaned into it. And when Reams opened in 2017 as a brick and mortar, it just, I kept thinking of the next thing. How can we do this better? How can we right. 
grow it? How can we build it? And I've always involved the community in helping me build it, and mm-hmm. which I think is part of the charm of Reem, so to speak, that, yeah, it has, I, I mean, for lack of, I, I really tried to figure out a name for the the restaurant right. that wasn't my name, but Reem's kind of invokes, like, come to Reem's, you know? Mm-hmm. And Reem's California is like Reem's version of California, right? The more that I learned about seasonality and how to work with vegetables, I learned that my people do that. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, this is my version yeah, of how great, I see California. Um, but it's so much about all the people that have right. helped build it than it is about me. So right. it feels kind of ironic. Yeah, it's too far. You're, it's too, you can't, it's baked in <laughs> at baked this in. point, as they say. Pun intended. So can I just ask, I don't want to get too far from it because you've alluded to it a few, you're, you've mentioned depression a few times. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, you and I met, I think our, our mutual pal Chandra Ram oh, introduced us yeah. at that first Saturday night in yeah. Chicago. I'd never met you before. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have an incredible energy. It's almost hard <laughs> for me, and I, I've talked about it on the show, as someone who suffers from like OCD and depression yeah. and, yeah. you know, takes Zoloft every night. Yeah. Um, you don't you don't seem to fit the profile. Is this something? If I can ask, yeah. is this like a? Does this been a constant presence since uh, I was thirteen? Antagonist in your life? Yeah, I mean, I think that trauma is real and um, internalized things. They you don't you don't know what they are until you uh, become an adult. But your chemistry changes as mm-hmm. a result of it, and I think for me. I've always had this will to have a spirit that is alive. And I keep thinking about who was the ream of the 10 year old ream. I feel like that was the last ream that I remember that didn't have the depression. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I had trauma of being a dis, you know, coming from a family that has their own generational trauma, mm-hmm. being an immigrant, facing racism. Um, having parents that did not get along, uh, being an older eldest child overachieving. It's like the, the, the whole, it's like the stereotype, right. Of right. the overachieving. Yeah. Uh, and you and I have that. Yeah. Problem. And yeah. I had a strong, um, anxiety mm-hmm. and my mom had a, you know, all, my whole family had these histories, but I didn't know about them. Right. And so I didn't deal with them for a long time. And I, uh, fell into deep depression. Um, I actually had, and I don't really, ta- I don't know if I talked about it in the in the book. Um, I had a uh, at the age of thirteen Epstein Barr virus. Oh wow! Which is like a, a version of mono, mm-hmm. and it made me delirious. And uh, my the doctors thought I was crazy. My parents thought I was crazy, and ended up in a mental health ward of the hospital. Uh, for like a short week, but that forever changed me. So a lot of, but it was interesting getting sick and the absence of food that like food always played sort of a, 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 a role in my downswings and my upswings and depriving myself. And that was a big, I think part of that when I was 13, when I was 19, I developed a digestive disorder Mm. And people didn't know what that was. They thought I was crazy. They thought I had, you know, that I was bulimic and that isolated me and led to a deep depression and so on and so forth. So, you know, food played this important role um, in, you know, like uh, depression manifests in the body Mm -hmm. and food can be a place of uh, 
harm and it can be a place of healing. Yeah. Comfort. And I really understood yeah. that. I understood that now in my 2010 implosion. <laughs> right. Um, how I could use food for good. But I've always had these bouts and I've learned to de- befriend my depression uh, and anxiety. You know, I've taken meds off and on since I was 13. Mm-hmm. I see a therapist. Uh, I got into Buddhism, mm-hmm. you know, all of the things. And right now, food and organizing is my religion. <laughs> um, and it served me well. But if I don't uh, if I don't stay in touch with what's going on in right. my body, it yeah. can easily get away from yeah. me. You know, that's well, like very common in the industry. Thanks for sharing. That. Yeah. I hope that wasn't too personal. No, no. I think it's really important to normalize it. I'm very open about my depression because uh, even in the industry, people, we know mental health issue. Oh mental health God. is an issue, yeah. but it's still for some reason taboo. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think that goes back. This kind of brings the conversation full circle. I think in the industry, it goes back to this notion of, you know, being someone who can be counted on, who shows up for their shift, who, you know, who who pulls their own weight, who, right? Like, and if you have issues, problems, challenges, however you want to phrase it, I think it's seen as something that might be perceived as a weakness. And at Reams, we talk about collective care. You know, when we talk about self care, it's like, how do we build a culture? where like self-care is just normal, mm-hmm. right? Like that you are allowed right. to take time for yourself. Sure. You're allowed to draw boundaries. Uh, and that was a really hard thing for me up until, I mean, still I'm on this journey right now in this this new iteration of Reem. Well, We're always changing and evolving yeah, but you're to also, draw boundaries. And you're an owner, which makes it especially yeah. hard. Well, that's why I'm like, here y'all can have it. <laughs> <laughs> We're changing well, to worker ownership. I heard an yeah. interview where you said you wish your, your workers would unionize. Yeah, so that, like right. it would just be easier for me. But right now we're in a transition at Reams to move into a worker ownership structure so that I don't have to have the burden of having to either save or fail my employees. Mm-hmm. That's just too much burden for one person. It should never be like that. So thinking about how do we change our culture to more collective culture so we're not only thinking about our own individual needs. Right. And, yeah, I would like for other people to think about that with me, too. Yeah, right. I get it. (laughs) But it's hard because, you know, as a public-facing persona and, you know, I really wanted to write this book as a reclamation of my identity um, because people were really putting me on this pedestal. Like, it was not normal to have a baby and open a fine dining restaurant two weeks later. That is not normal. Right. <laughs> you know, it is not normal to work around the clock, you know, 16 hour days. Mm-hmm. And yet I was being celebrated for this like woman who was like Force accomplishing of it all. Yeah, and, right. and I was a mother. It's like, no, I was a shitty mother. <laughs> Let's just be real here. I mean, whatever, by the standards of, uh, I know that I'm an okay mother, but like, you can't do everything and do it well, you know? And so I didn't want to be celebrated for this motherhood and this chefdom and they're contradictory. And I just Mm -hmm. wanted to like be myself, my own human self. And I wasn't allowed to do that for a very long time. And I think what this book really shows is I'm all of these things, you know, my food is not authentic to one experience or another it's accumulation of all these things that i am yeah imperfect as they are i'll have set up the book and all this in the yeah. in the intro to the show right yeah. but the thing i always I collaborated on a lot of books yeah. and the first question i would always ask when i would sit down to talk about maybe doing a project 
because the answer can be so varied, right? Is mm -hmm. why, why do you want to write a book? So my question for you with all this stuff going on in your life, with all the different things <laughs> that, that um, thread through your restaurants, yeah. right? Why, why did you want to do a book? What was the, with so much in your life, right? Yeah. Like when we met at the Beards, I was like, do you yeah. want to do an interview while you're in town? You're like, well, I'm yeah. traveling with a child, yeah. right? Book's a lot of work. It is. What was important about it to you? I mean, it was exactly what I said. It's a reclamation. I really wanted to come out, <laughs> so to speak. Here I am, all of it on the table. I didn't want just like bits and versions of myself out there. And I felt like up until that point, as getting on the public sphere, like people just knew this public persona of Reams. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be vulnerable. For me, being vulnerable is the thing that has helped me build community in my restaurants. And I thought in writing a book, Maybe it could help me build my community further than I ever even imagined. And so far it has. Um, not just with people who are touched by my book who aren't Arab, but like Arabs in diaspora. They're everywhere, second, third generation. And to be able to touch them and to give them visibility, um, to talk about their experience, it's been amazing. And uh, we all wanna feel connected. We want to feel connected to something bigger than our, ourselves. So I think selfishly, I was trying to build community with a much bigger pool than I was just in my restaurants. Great. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for letting me be honest. Oh, please. That's all I ever swear want. Swear on your podcast. That's all I, I ever want. Um, <laughs> and uh, maybe next time I'm in the Bay Area, we'll do a sequel. Yeah, um, for sure. Right. Great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you too. And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Reem Asil for joining us. Please check out her book, Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. The link again is on the episode page for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. And thanks to Rani Mazumdar. Again, links to Unapologetic Foods and Briani Bowl are also in today's show notes. Our thanks, as always, to Sam Pellegrino for their support. And thanks to Bento Box and Clover for their support. From websites and marketing tools to point of sale, payments, and ordering, Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com better. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman, if you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend about the pod, posting about it on social media, or rating, and especially reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which does help new listeners find us. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.